My name's Neil, if uh, you don't know. Along with my wonderful wife, Kate, we lead this, <laughs> we attempt to lead this church, the Southwest Son of Union, this wonderful church. Um, last week, prompted by <laughs> some of the, re- the recent events that we're facing across the nation, indeed across uh, the world, and we began to look at the subject of, of unity. And, and specifically what we were trying, I was trying to do uh, last week was to look at the subject of unity and how it is that God loves unity um, expressed through the, the richness of diversity. God loves unity. But he seems to love it when it's expressed through all these different kinds of um, diversity. And this is, because this is such an important subject, it's such an important subject, I want us to carry on this morning. Um, so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to um, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is in the New Testament, the words will magically appear behind me. Um, but we're in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, in the text that we're going to look at this week, and, and, and probably, just to warn you, probably next week as well, uh, so that you've got the sequel, but those of you who aren't here this morning will get the whatever. Um, you'll be able to sort of catch up. Uh, in, this, in this bit of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is, uh, is, is, is making a, a big deal about this whole subject of unity. Good morning. I'm feeling lost. Ephesians chapter 4. There you go. All kinds of things happen here. It's exciting. Never a dull moment. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there you have it. And uh, just in case you're uh, not convinced that it's unity that Paul is actually talking about here, that it's actually unity that he's talking about, did you notice, did you see how in the space of three verses, just three verses, he uses the word one seven times? There is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all uh, and through all and in all. You get, you get the point? He's one, 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 one. He's like, um, he's, it's like he's got a, a screw and he's just, every time he tastes one, he's like turning the screw another quarter turn. It's like driving this thing home. And it's oneness, it's unity that he's talking about in this chapter. Unity in our relationships, unity in our small groups, unity uh, across you know, the family of churches that we belong to, unity across the, the vineyard family, across the United Kingdom and across the world, unity across the entire body of Christ. 
the whole body of Christ, that unity with any who name the name of Jesus, be they Anglicans or Catholics or Methodists or Baptists or Brethren or New Frontiers or Orthodox or Pentecostals or any of the other gazillion things, expressions of the body of Christ that I've failed to mention. Unity and oneness. That's what he's banging on about here. And with all the stuff that's been going, across, uh, going on across the nation and across the world over the past uh, few weeks, never has this, been, this subject been more pressing, more important. So just to give you a little bit of context to what's happening uh, here uh, in chapter 4, um, what's Paul been saying in the previous, the preceding three chapters in his letter to the church in Ephesus? And, and in, in the first three chapters, basically up until this point, what Paul has been trying to drive home in the first three chapters of Ephesians is, is, is his, his, his teaching us doctrine. The letter's about, mostly it's about doctrine. And, and specifically, the first three chapters are about um, who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. It's about our identity as as followers of Jesus, as, as believers. And, and then what he does is he begins chapter 4 with this kind of therefore, right? So you've got chapters 1 to 3, and then you've got this therefore moment at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, in light of everything I've just said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And, and what he's saying here is, he's saying, Okay, in light of all that Jesus has done, I've just told you all about it, chapters 1 to 3, in light of all that Jesus has done, knowing now, because you've read chapters 1 to 3, knowing now who you are in Christ Jesus, because you've been paying attention to my carefully crafted words in chapters 1 to 3, knowing your true identity as sons and daughters of the living God, because of all of that, now live life. Now do life. Now conduct yourselves as followers of Jesus in such a manner, in such a way that is worthy of the calling that you've received. Does that make sense? Go home and read it this evening. So having sort of unpacked some, some foundational doctrines, some, 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 some key principles in chapters 1 to 3, uh, what Paul does now is he sort of he shifts a gear and he, he, he starts to get cracking on, okay, that's sort of the theory. What does it look like in practice? That's, that's, that's the idea. What does it actually look like in terms of day-to-day -day living? How is it that we respond to what it is that God has done for us? Now, of course, this, this shift of gear is not absolute. Uh, there's still some pretty chunky doctrine in chapters 4, 5, and 6, as in the same way that there's still plenty of, um, of practical stuff for us to get our heads around in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But there is a change. There is a, there is a definite shift of tone. And the shift of tone really that happens around chapter 4 is the shift from um, principle to practice. It's from uh, creed, if you like, to conduct. It's, it's from what we believe to how we behave. That's really what it's about. Um, and what Paul does, and what he begins to do here, is he begins to unpack over chapters 4, 5, and 6, amongst other things. But um, the thing I really want to highlight, he begins to unpack two great features, if you like, uh, two, two sort of hallmarks, 
two identifying traits of the church. Uh, two key things that, that are to distinguish the church from the world around us. Uh, and in, uh, in, here in chapters 4, verses 1 to 16, we see the first of them, which is unity. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, on to five, chapter 5, verse 30, I think, uh, he gets on to the second one, and the second one is purity. Unity and purity. Unity and purity. These are, what Paul's saying is that these are, this is what makes us different. This is some of the stuff. This is some of the stuff that makes us different. This is why, as the body of Christ, as the fellowship of the believers, we stand out. We're different to other organizations and other institutions and other things that are going on in the world around. We're different. We're unique. And part of that uniqueness is the expression, the manifest expression of unity and the manifest demonstration of purity. And we kind of read that and we sort of start shifting slightly in our seats and going, oh, oh, you know, I, I, like, I agree with the idea, definitely. I like the idea of it. But, you know, oh, not quite sure if, if that's reflective of the way that I live life. You know, I, 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 I feel a bit of a hypocrite. I feel like my life actually is a bit of a contradiction in those terms. You know, we're called to unity. We know that. Absolutely, yes, check, I agree. But when it really comes down to it, it's like, well, yeah, I know I'm called to it, but I, I, I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. It's not easy. It's, it's not an easy thing. Called to purity, yep, check, absolutely, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, but then actually when I take a little bit of time and think about my own life, I go, yeah, I don't think I'm quite there yet, like by a long margin. And the, the, the reality is, if that's how we feel, most of us look at our lives and we're not entirely sure why we're not there yet. We believe these things to be true. We believe in the principle. We believe in the creed. But for some reason, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's made its way out into our practice. You know, without question, we would believe, we would say, absolutely, hand on heart, that we believe in a holy God. We're singing about a holy God. We believe in a pure God. But for some reason... So many of us have swathes of impurity in our lives. We live with that kind of tension. Uh, without question, we, we would say, hand on heart, that we believe in a God who reconciles. We believe in a God who unifies. That's why Jesus came. We know that. We know the creed. We know the doctrine. We know the theory. And yet, sometimes... We're just, we're just not the best at working what that looks like out on a day-to-day -day basis with one another, with our brothers and sisters. So um, here in chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul begins with um, just one of these hormones, this, 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 this thing of the church, and the difference that we are to be and to demonstrate and to embody, and that's unity. And I think it's true to say, I think it's fair to say, uh, most of the world longs for unity. Most of the world wants Unity. I, I, I think if you were to ask most people, they'd say, well, you know, however they might express it. They'd say something along the lines of, they may not use this language, but something along the lines of, you know, I, I, I want to have whole and uh, healthy and healed relationships. Yes, of course. Why, why wouldn't I? You know, who would want, who would want to lead isolated and angry and alienated lives? No one would want that. We'd all, we'd all like to live 
and we'd all like to see more harmony and, and, and unity, whether that's within our families or our places of work or uh, at the schools in which our children or we go to or um, in our cities or across the world in which we live in. We look at the news and we just think, oh, for goodness sake, over a more united world. It's unlikely that the vast majority have even um, heard of the 1970s, let alone remember them. Uh, I think there's a few of you that may recognize that. But um, way back then, uh, when I was a wee lad, um, before most of you were born probably, uh, Coca-Cola were leading the charge on global unity. Um, they, used to have this, um, they used to have this ad for Coke. They used to have this ad for Coke, you know, the real thing. Uh, and it was in the 1970s, and they used to have these, um, these young, uh, good-looking at the time, um, pretty, hippie-looking guys. They were all standing on a hillside. I think it was in Italy uh, somewhere. Uh, uh, and it was like a whole bunch of people, young people of all different colors and creeds and ethnicities and all kinds of stuff, and they were all looking pretty chic. You know, the, the girls had their sort of long, flowing locks and um, braided hair. Huh? And so did the men. Um, just look around you. Anyone over the age of 60, do you know what I'm saying? I reckon this would probably apply to them. A uh, lot of cheesecloth going around, a lot of cheese generally, uh, some probably dubious moustaches and stuff like that. Um, and as you, do, as you do when you're at that kind of you know, point in your life and it's the early 70s, you stand on a hillside and you sing. I think it was a New Seekers song uh, or something. Um, do you want to see it? You can sing along. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Marsha Brady. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Some pretty impressive camera work right there. It's like, I reckon the guy was like up a ladder, right? And he's like, oh, rubbish, I think I'm going to fall off. How far advertising campaigns have come in the last X number of years. Uh, and this, 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 this ad, I mean, you know, it's like, had it been able to, it would have gone viral. Uh, it, 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 it was, it, was it, it became known as the first. Uh, united chorus of the world, and um, according to st studies have been carried out on it, and, and, and it's it's popular to this very day for those people who can remember it. Absolutely love it. It's still one of the greatest ads of our time. It, it influenced a whole new kind of um, approach to advertising. Um, Benetton. Okay, now we're now we're in the 80s, right? A little bit better for some of you. Uh, some of you still don't know who Benetton are. Uh, Benetton, I think Benetton was the, the largest clothing empire, certainly in Europe, if not bigger. And uh, in the 80s, they launched their United Colors of Benetton ad campaign. Do you remember that? You know, with some, with some shocking at the time. Do you remember how, do you remember the, 
you know, the nun kissing the priest, uh, you know, and the uh, Jewish kid and the Arab, you know, the Palestinian kid are just sitting next to each other, the AIDS patient. There was a, a lot of um, shocking imagery, which we weren't used to back then, um, as they launched this United Colors of Benetton campaign, this thing about unity. And that's, I think, what um, it struck people. That's what impacted people. It was this desire for unity. This, this, this desire that we all have, this, this, this something where we want to see um, barriers broken down, racial barriers, uh, gender barriers, all barriers that exist. Um, in essence, this is core to this global kind of humanity. Uh, and in the case of Coca-Cola, the key to it all, the key to this wonderful nirvana, this uh, uh, Italian hilltop utopia, um, of course, is nothing less than the highly flavored, um, sickeningly sweet carbonated water that is Coca-Cola, the real thing. You see, have a sip of Coca-Cola and the world suddenly falls into place. Now, uh, it may come as a great surprise to you. I really hope it, <laughs> I hope not. Um, we can talk later if it does. Um, but Coca-Cola's understanding of how the world might be united is slightly different to what the Apostle Paul is advocating. You may be glad, reassured, uh, to hear. And um, Paul is, is saying, no, 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 it's not like that, actually. Nice idea, not quite right. Uh, and Paul, um, he's not about to suggest. He doesn't suggest, you know, that unity comes about through um, standing on a hillside in a commune, sipping carbonated drinks. He's not about to suggest that Unity comes about through committee meetings. He's not about to suggest that unity comes about through high-level government um, negotiations. He's not saying any of that. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians is that if we want unity, if we want great relationships with one another, we want great relationships with people, the first thing that he says, and it's a hurry, is recognize and realize that unity takes effort. Unity requires effort, serious, serious effort. Have a look at verse 3. Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If we're, if we're wanting to have great relationships, um, Paul is saying that unity has to be our goal. It has to be in our mind. It has to be in our mind's eye, part of our focus. And that doesn't just happen automatically, is what he's saying. We won't have unified churches just because people have a Coke together and sing we won't have a unified church just because we eat, coffee, eat donuts and drink coffee together. We won't have great marriages just because, well, we got married. You know, we did the hard bit, we got married, and now it's just plain sailing. As any of you who are married, no. We won't have great relationships because, you know, we've we got things in common. We share the same sort of values. We've got the same sort of ideas. Or, you know, well, we live down the same street. You know, our kids go to the same school. So, of course, our relationships are going to be fine. Of course they are. Uh, it doesn't happen like that, as you well know. For these things to come about, we have to be passionate about unity. And that's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter um, uh, 4, verse 3. He's saying, make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Hard work. And this is where doctrine turns into practice. So here's where the rubber hits the road in terms of our Christian profession. Question for us, and the challenge for us is, are we making every effort to have healthy and unified and united relationships 
uh, with other believers and the people in their lives. Uh, speaking personally, I find, this I find this verse challenging, hugely challenging. Uh, the Lord is constantly taking me to task on it, and I really wish that he wouldn't, uh, but he does, and he is. Um, and he's taking me to task particularly over, because um, I'm having an argument and a conversation with the Lord about the semantics of what does make every effort mean, do you see? Um, having convinced myself that I have actually made every effort, and feeling like the Spirit of God is saying, hmm, have you? So we're having a dialogue. Um, and it's almost like Paul saying, you know, no, 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 hold on. Spare no expense. Be urgent. Be urgent. Be passionate. Don't just settle for okay in your relationships. Don't do that. And I'm like, mm, sure. He's like, no. So he's basically saying, do whatever, you, you know, do everything that you possibly can. Um, I think the truth is I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for myself certainly here. Sometimes I think we settle. I think it's very easy for us to settle um, for too low a standard in our relationships with one another. Um, I think if we're being honest, I, I, I think I'd, I'd have to say that there, there are times when we're almost satisfied and content or recognize it as just the way that it is that there's going to be a certain level of disunity and it's just the way it is. Um, there are just going to be a certain number of broken relationships, and that's just life. It's a bit like, if I can use this analogy, you know, when we say, well, you know, um, Ten Commandments. I mean, I know there's only ten of them, but no one can keep them all. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like, that's really hard. So um, ten's actually quite a lot when it comes down to it. So um, I'll just keep eight. I'll just keep eighth. I'll focus on eighth, and I'll do really well on eighth. I mean, that stealing thing, you know, I mean, stealing is pretty broad, isn't it? I mean, what does that actually mean, even, right? You know, I'm not robbing banks. I'm not holding people up at gunpoint. So I'm technically not really stealing. So I'm pretty much covered it off, right? That lying thing, you know. Lying. You say tomato, I say tomato. Lying. I, I think it's all relative. You know, I, I, I think it's hyperbole. I think it's exaggeration. I think it's actually part of my personality profile that I'm predisposed to that kind of generosity of um, statement. At least I'm not bowing down to idols. You know, I do try to honor my parents occasionally and when I can, when they're nice to me. Um, and I think sometimes we're like that with our relationships. Um, you know, when I've fallen out with so-and-so, I've fallen out with him and I've fallen out with her and, you know, things aren't too great with them. But, you know, these other eight people I get on really, really well with, you know. So how much can we expect? Surely that's enough. Paul says, no, I don't think so. Paul says, make every effort. He says, make every effort. Make every effort. We've got to stop settling for a certain amount of relational disunity. We've got to work, all of us. This is the hallmark. These are the hallmarks of the church so that we can be this bright, shining light to the world, which is increasingly dark, as we work out our relationships, first and foremost, here within um, the church and with uh, one another, as we aim to be at peace with every single person that we know. We need to aim at total unity, just in the same way that we would aim at obeying all the commandments of God. Um, and this is one of them. Make every effort, then, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You might say, well, you know, um, Neil, you don't, you don't know how annoying these people actually are. <laughs> right, trust me, I do, right? Um, 
Or you might say, well, you know, yeah, that's really easy for you to say. Um, you know, you haven't got my parents, you haven't got my, fr you haven't got my friends, right? Or you haven't got my siblings or something like that. Um, so how, how far should we go in making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? That's my question, too. Um, you know, how much time, how much effort, how much energy should we expend? How much sacrifice, how costly should this be for us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Um, well, uh, the more I look at this as I wrestle with the Lord, um, the more important I think this is to the Lord. Um, uh, and as I say, this is something the Lord is speaking to me about and has been for a little while. Uh, so um, I come to you as someone who has got a lot of work to do in this area, so um, just so that you recognize that. Um, but I, I do think this is one of those areas um, that is so important to the Lord uh, that he would rather we kept him waiting while we sorted this out. That's how important it is. And I, what? No, surely not. And he said, well, yes, I think so. Um, if we think about it, we understand one of our highest priorities. The chief end of, of man is to, is, to, is to worship God, to glorify him forever. Worship is what we've been made for. Worship is why we've been created. We are to worship our creator. And uh, we would all agree, certainly here in the vineyard, that worship is absolutely central. And, and it comes before anything else. Worshiping God comes before anything else. Worshiping God comes above everything else. And so um, we read the Bible. We know that the Bible teaches that we should worship God above our desire to make money and our desire to be successful, our desire to be important and to um, appear important in other people's eyes. You know, if it's a choice, if it's literally a binary choice between, I don't know, um, watching the tennis or worshiping God, just a little test. Just wanted to gauge the response to see the spiritual, the spiritual barometer in the, in the room, just to see where we are, to see how our discipleship's going, right? It's like, sounds like we could do some work. It's like, yeah, no brainer, tennis. Well, no. <laughs> we worship God, we don't watch the tennis, you know? Oh, we worship God as we watch, as we watch the tennis. Controversial. Uh, worshiping God should come before, and it should come before all these things, you know, uh, whatever it may be. Um, it comes before our, our own time, it comes before our free time, it comes before our whole time. Don't keep God waiting, basically, is what I'm trying to say. You know, uh, we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of the Almighty. We go and we worship Him. We worship Him before everything else, we worship Him above everything else. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Yes, absolutely, it does. However, Matthew chapter 5 says this. This is Jesus. If you're offering your gift at the altar, i.e., you are in the act of worship. Offering your gift at the altar means you've arrived at church at 10 to 11, okay? You know? And you're rushing down and rushing down to the front and hoping that the priests don't see you. Right, and and because you might be you might be in trouble, and and you're you've got your pigeon or your goat or your sheep or whatever it is, and you're you're about to offer your sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of what we're doing here this morning. Yeah, so we're we're in this place of worship. We've come in through the doors. We've entered His courts with thanksgiving in our hearts and praise it on our lips. We're 
putting him, we're interrupting our preoccupation with ourselves, we're putting him at the center of our lives, we're interrupting our schedules, we're going off to some random school hall in the middle of nowhere, goodness only knows why, to sing some random songs, because it's our act of worship. We don't understand it, we don't get it, we may not even like it, but it's our sacrifice of praise, part of our act of worship. So this is what we do. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Leave your gift there. Stop what you're doing. Stop worshipping. Time out. Take a break. Stop doing what you're doing. And Jesus then goes on and says, first, 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 first and foremost, go and be reconciled with your brother and your sister, and then once you're reconciled with your brother and sister, then come back, pick up your pigeon, and finish the job, then come and worship. In other words, in the first instance, before anything and everything else, even over and above our act of worship, our sacrifice of praise, make every effort then to be at peace. Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, and then once you've done that, carry on your worship, join in the singing, Carry on offering your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Um, you see, this whole area of unity and reconciliation between people, between us, between one another, it's so important to the Lord uh, that Jesus is saying, um, this is so important, it trumps. It's, it's, it's even more important on this occasion than worship. Don't worship until you've done this one thing. First, sort out your relationship with the person who's at odds with you. First, sort out the relationship with someone who has something against you. And then come. And then come and sing worship and praise God. And, and the reason why we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, the reason we're to spare no expense, the reason that we are to be passionate, to be urgent, to be um, extreme, to be rabid about clearing up these problems, uh, messy and complicated as it is, trust me, um, the reason that we're to be like that is because God connects and ties his relationship with us. Our relationship with, with God is connected and tied to our, relation, our relationships with other people. It goes like this. It's not just like this. It, it, it's somehow this is connected. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us and he says, when you pray, pray like this, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Do you see? Um, forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, as I forgive, as we forgive. Forgive me, Lord, um, as I forgive those who've sinned against me, as I forgive those who've offended me, as, though, as we forgive those who've angered us, as we forgive those who've hurt us, as we forgive those who've abused us. Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive others. Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, how do we maintain unity? First, first of all, we realize it takes effort. It requires effort. Uh, it, it does. Um, secondly, the next thing is um, work out what our attitude needs to be. Develop, we need to develop the right attitude. So have a look at verse 2. Um, if, if being passionate, 
If making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace is like the foundation stone, is like the, the under, underpinning of establishing and keeping and maintaining and developing healthy, uh, open relationships. The question is, what, what attitudes do we need uh, so that we can have unity with one another? Uh, and verse 2, I think, um, helps us out with that. It just points to some attitude, an attitude of our hearts that will help us establish great relationships. And it says this, be completely humble and gen- gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. When we find ourselves at odds with people, when we find ourselves um, out of relationship with other people, um, no amount of mediation, no amount of counseling, no amount of reading, no amount of advice will ever bring us together, the parties together, unless something happens in our hearts. No amount of media, no, no amount of external, it can all be helpful, but none of it's actually going to fundamentally change anything until something happens within our hearts. Paul says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. And, and the reason I think that he says that is because I think the truth is, is that pride is behind much of the discord um, and the disunity that we find particularly in the church. I think a lot of it is rooted in pride, and pride is behind so much of the relational breakdown that we see in the church and, and elsewhere. It's our pride that makes us say, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. You know, it's, it's, it's our pride that's sort of like, what about me? It's all about me. Me, 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 me. Um, what about my needs? I'll apologize after they have. I mean, they're, they're, they're at the blame. Why, I mean, why should I? Uh, you know, when they, they, when they, you know, come and sort it out, then, and then I'll be responsive. Mm-hmm. But not until then. Humility on the other said, humility on the other hand says, no, do you know what? Uh, I'm going to bow down. I, I will get down on my face. I will humble myself. I, I will take the first step. I, I will humble myself. And before they say they were wrong, I'm going to say, do you know what? I was wrong. I'll be the first to take a risk. I'll be the first to say, do you know what? I'm really sorry for whatever it may be. Uh, it's our pride, I think, that makes us say, you know, I need to look good. I need to save face. I need to keep my shape, myself. Humility says, oh, I don't care about any of that. None of it really matters. Uh, what matters to me is connectedness. It's about our relationship. It's, it's about our history. It's about the things that we've been through together, all the good and the bad. It's, it's, it's about that, and that's too important to throw away much more important than looking good. Uh, Paul mentions gentleness. He says, be completely humble, be completely gentle. And and what he's talking about here is he's saying, be meek. Be willing to give up our rights. Um, And this is where we find ourselves, yet again, face-to-face with the radical counterculture of the kingdom of God. Welcome to Christianity. Um, the received wisdom of the age is that we should be looking out for ourselves. What about me? Look after number one. Protect yourself. Hide yourself away. Lock yourself away. Pull down the portcullis. Pull up the drawbridge. You know, dig a moat 20 miles wide and hide ourselves in our own little high tower of safety and security. Um, the trouble is, is that's the sort of mindset and that's the sort of attitude that probably got us into the mess in the first place. You know, looking out for ourselves is, is not 
it's not a good foundation for a relationship. Any of you who are married, you know, when you're saying, my needs, my needs, my needs, it, it, it's not going to go well. It's not about us. You see, there's a big difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world tells us uh, to look out for ourselves. The wisdom of God says, lay down your rights. Be meek. Be humble. Lay yourself down. Allow me to lift you up. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Um, there's a lot of aggravate, uh, aggravating people. It's absolutely true. There's a lot of aggravating people. Uh, situations uh, and this business of being patient of being forbearing with one another in love means that um, it means that if we want to be in re- good relationship with one another um, we we need to um, not be thin-skinned we need to not be so easily offended okay I'm um, just going to venture out here uh, sometimes do you find that um, people that you come into contact with they sort of they they live life we live life, I, I include myself in this, uh, as if we've got a, a, a bad case of sunburn. You know, and, and uh, you're uh, walking around, you know, you're up by the coffee and you're off by the donuts or you're just bumping into somebody. And, and, and the slightest touch, just, ah, 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 least insensitivity, the slightest touch, and it's like this dramatic overreaction. It's like, oh, if we cut off their limb. You do know, don't you? I mean, anyone who's been around this church for more than 30 seconds, okay, you do know, don't you, that it is only a matter of time before somebody here offends you, right? Um, if you've been here for 10 seconds, you will probably know by now that it's most likely going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> I am being transformed with ever-increasing glory into the image of Jesus. It used to be three seconds, and now it's got up to ten. Look, I am the embodiment of what Jesus can do in terms of transforming you. I mean, seriously, I'm just a... So, um, now, will, certainly in my case, uh, will, do I mean to offend you? Probably not. Probably not. I don't think many of us kind of go out of our way to upset and offend. And sometimes it just happens. Um, In my case, the offense is most likely to come out or to be caused because of my weakness. Yeah? So, So the reason that I've offended you, if I indeed I have, Right? I'm, just pre- I'm not aware that I've ever offended any of you. I'm sure you'll tell me if I have. Um, uh, I look forward to that later on. Uh, <laughs> my email is mike, M-I-K-E, <laughs> at swlv.org.uk. Um, he's collecting a file. It's quite large now. It's a cabinet full. Um, uh, what was I saying? I can't remember. Uh, what? Oh, yes, yeah, my weakness. <laughs> Thank you. No wonder I'd forgotten. <laughs> um, yes, the reason that I will cause offense is probably because of my weakness. It may be, possibly, just, it, may be, um, it may be that my offense is actually because of your weakness. 
and this is the way it was with, with all of us. It's not just me to you, it's just one to another. So we need to demonstrate grace. We need to be completely humble and gentle. We need to be patient. We need to bear with one another in love. We need to be kind to one another. We need to um, choose to think the best of one another. We need to cut each other some slack. We need to give one another the space to fail. And we need to give one another the grace to, uh, to, to mess up. I think... Um, I think Bob Fulton, his brother-in-law of John Wimber, used to say, um, he used to call it cold custard syndrome. Not getting upset over trifles. Aww. It wasn't mine. But that's, that's kind of what it's, we're talking about. It's like, is it worth all this grief? Is it worth all this stuff? Is it worth all of this separation? Is it worth playing into the enemy's hands, whether we're right or wrong, of allowing separation to exist in our relationships? That's... Jesus came to reconcile. Jesus came to bring, bridge the gap. Let's make sure that we're not playing into the enemy's hands by allowing separation to exist um, at all, ever. And if, um, and when someone offends us, if and when someone upsets us, if and when someone does something that ruffles our feathers, let, you know, let's choose not to get all proud and self-righteous. Let's not get all high and mighty. Let's, um, let's not choose to you know, blank them for months or whatever. Let's, let's not choose to bad mouth them you know, um, for your prayers. You know, at a, the next prayer meeting, it's like, oh, I need to pray. We need to pray about so-and-so. You know what they did, don't you? I mean, for, 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 the, for your prayers. You know, and, and it's that sort of secret and choice morsels talks about in Proverbs. You know, gossip is like, Choice mortals goes down to the innermost parts and brings satisfaction. We like those choice mortals. Don't, don't, don't tell me. You know, Eleanor Roosevelt, if you've got something nasty to say, come and sit next to me. You know? Let's not do that. Instead, let's recognize that it's there by the grace of God. Go we all. Let's be completely humble and gentle. Let's be patient. Let's bear with one another in love as we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Um, and you see all of this, this passion for our relationships, these attitudes, they're built on a foundation of truth about who God is, about who we are in him. If we're content to tolerate damaged relationships with each other, if we settle for less than the best, um, it is to some extent because we just haven't understood who God is. And we haven't understood fully who we are in him. And we haven't understood his plans and his purposes for this, his body, his bride, the church. We need to read our Bibles a bit more. We need to understand. We need to get to grips with the doctrine a little better because then we'll start to see it more clearly. Um, he, in verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4, um, Paul focuses in on the triune God he focuses in on the Trinity. He says there is one body. There is one spirit. In verse 5, he says, he speaks about the one Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he says, one God and Father of all. If we only more fully understood God's intention for the church, Ephesians 3 verse 10, his intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's his intent. His intent is to use us to, through us, through us, I mean, it's ridiculous, what a plan, is he mad, you know? But through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to principalities and powers. Bonkers. But that's the plan. 
And if we only understood that better, if we only got that better, if we grasped that better, if we only more fully understood our relationship with God, we would make every effort. We would make much more effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because the church, (laughs) we are a reflection of the Trinity. The church is a reflection of the Trinity, the the unity and the diversity of the triune God. We are not being asked to form some kind of uh, great, giant, organizational uniformity. We touched on that last week. We're being asked to maintain a unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we're to experience that and to live that regardless of our diversity and our difference. Whatever our background, whoever we are. Paul's saying not only were we given one spirit, but he's saying we have one hope. One hope. One future calling. One future destiny. One hope. Look ahead. Look at look, look, look the horizon. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. A story is told from the 18th century. I will finish, I promise. A story is told from the 18th century. There was this young chap, this keeps going down, who was courting. Um, uh, I guess it would be a a young lady who was of a much higher social class than he. Uh, They were very much in love, and uh, the young chap went to see her father and asked the father for his daughter's hand in marriage. And um, the father, of course, refused. And then the father talked with the daughter, and he, the, the father sort of was a bit cross with his daughter. He said, well, you know, who is this, who is this young man? Who is this young man, uh, you know, that I should grant your hand in marriage? Uh, you know, where does he come from? Well, you know, what's his, what's his background? What's his pedigree? Who are his parents? You know, I mean, uh, they're just poor people. They're just poor people from the village. He's, you know, he's marrying beyond his class. What's he doing? And the daughter replied to her father, and she said, Father, I don't know where Philip has come from, but I do know where he's going. I don't know where he's come from, but I do know where he's going. And um, division, disunity, tends to come when we focus on where we've come from. I, I come from an unchurched background. You may come from a, a, a long line of Bishops and archbishops and whatever, archdeacons, whatever they're called. You may have, you know, um, no one in my family was a Christian before me. Uh, Everyone in your family may have been Christians. My grandfather was a Muslim, for goodness sake. You know, you may say, what? You may be, you may be here and you may be from Africa. You may be here and you may be from um, the United States. You may be here and you're from Australia or Asia or, or Timbuktu. Uh, to be honest, I don't really care. You may be here from some, one of our many glorious European brethren. Uh, you may be here this morning and you've got a degree. You may be here this morning and you've got a PhD. You may be here this morning and you haven't even got a GCSE or a CSE, if anyone knows what they are. Uh, all I'm saying, it doesn't matter where we've come from. Can we just... Get over it. It doesn't matter where we've come from. The only thing that matters is where are we going? Because if we have the Spirit of God in our life, if we're a child of God, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we are all going in the same direction. That's what unites us. We're on a common journey. So let's be on a common journey together. 
doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't, I don't think it really matters where you are, particularly. But what matters is where are you going? Because as a body of believers, as this little tiny expression of the body of Christ, the Southwest London Vineyard, this incidental little flavor in the wonderful stew that is the body of Christ, for this part of our journey, for this season in our lives, however long that season is, however short that season is, and we, we are going on that journey together. Brothers and sisters, arm in arm, united, working together, pressing into the kingdom of God. And um, as we travel, as pilgrims on our way to Canterbury or wherever, uh, we, um, we're just trying to work out this thing called Christianity together. We're, we're fellow pilgrims on the journey trying to understand how best we do this thing called Christianity. And as we journey, as we walk along that road, as we walk along that route, let's make an agreement, let's make a commitment that we will, as we journey, as we travel together, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why don't you stand and we will do something else.